Here's the deal. I studied a whole lot about this in the 1980s and the 1990s. I kind of put most of that work on the shelf since then. But I was studying this stuff furiously back then. And I was shocked to find, uh, you know, in recent investigation, that the Internet is exploding with interest in the Hebrew Matthew traditions. And this kind of reminded me of what happened with the, the true Mount Sinai. I, I was into all that stuff in the 80s and 90s. Then I says, okay, I've taken it as far as I want, put it on the shelf, and I come back to it. Remember, I gave that sermon before the feast. Passover warm-up, follow the water. The Internet's exploded with people interested in this. And Javon, Brother Javon, comforted me before the feast. He says, remember what you always say, Brother Mike. Uh, I, I was Hebrew roots before Hebrew roots was cool. And when you studied something and uh, that, that really means a lot to you, and then you find suddenly everybody else is interested in it. Well, what can I say? It, is, it does give me a lift. Thank you, Javon. Thanks so much. I may need this. <clears throat> Brought a lot of props with me. So now with everybody posting a Hebrew Matthew article online, Hebrew Matthew videos, it's all over. Everybody's interested in this now. So how am I going to make our stuff stand out? Well, I gave it a clickbait title. A clickbait title. When people see, they do searches on the internet for Hebrew Matthew, they're going to see tasting the Hebrew Matthew. Now that sounds interesting. And my hope is that, uh, well, it's clickbait, but I deliver. You know, most, click, most clickbait doesn't deliver. I deliver. Yahweh willing. Well, maybe I'll have to appeal to the uh, control people to uh, advance the slides for me. Okay, now there are at least three Hebrew Matthew manuscripts out there. And I'm acquainted with two of them. The third is less important, but it's worthy of note. The two I can present are plenty interesting in themselves. Uh, But first, I'm going to give you a profile of an ally, an ally of ours. He flourished in the uh, 1970s, 1980s. His name is Dr. George, in in the 1990s. His name is uh, Dr. George Howard from the University of Georgia. He promoted the exploration of ways that Yahweh's name would likely be in the New Testament. And uh, I was plugging into the sacred name movement as of uh, 1975 and going forward. Next slide. Okay. Now here's the the title tag on an article he wrote in 1977, The Tetragram and the New Testament. And um, I'm going to read to you the introductory paragraph from the article, and then I'm going to summarize it for you. And you'll see why he was of great interest to many sacred namers at that time. Next slide. Now, we'll get through this, but my clicker is just not doing anything, and I'm, okay. Maybe the battery's low. We'll be okay. Okay. Thanks, Brother Randy. Okay, I'm going to read this introductory paragraph by George Howard. Recent, no, I can't read it. (laughs) Okay. I don't know if it matters, but uh, I've had an awful lot of trouble putting this together. Computers crashes, setbacks of all kinds, 
Maybe I'm on to a good thing. There you go. Thanks a lot, Randy. Recent discoveries in Egypt and in the Judean desert allow us to see firsthand the use of G.O.D.'s name in pre-Christian times. These discoveries are significant for New Testament studies in that they form a literary analogy with the earliest Christian documents and may explain how New Testament authors use the divine name. In the following pages, we will set forth a theory that the divine name, yod Hey wow Hey parentheses, and possibly abbreviations of it, was originally written in the New Testament quotations of and allusions to the Old Testament, and that in the course of time it was replaced mainly with the surrogate, K-S with a line over it, Kappa Sigma with a line over it. This removal of the tetragram, in our view, created a confusion in the minds of early Gentile Christians about the relationship between, quote, the Lord, G-O-D, and, quote, the Lord Christ which is reflected in the manuscript tradition of the New Testament itself. In support of this theory, we will describe the relevant pre-Christian and post-New Testament evidence for use of the divine name in written documents and explore its implications for the New Testament. All right, every now and then, I, I, I like reading this article again to remind me of what he was saying in 1977 before he plugged into the Hebrew Matthew. He's saying, look, in writings before the apostolic era, it was very common for people to use Yahweh's name all over the place. Hebrew writings and Greek writings. The uh, Dead Sea Scrolls are an example of this. But there are Bible experts, Bible scholars, who flourished before Yahshua's time, sometime after. And they were freely using the name. Sometimes they used the shortcuts uh, one that turned up in the Greek is Yao, Iota, Alpha, Omega, Yao. Well, that calls to mind the trigram. We might pronounce it Yahoo as in Benjamin Netanyahu. But uh, people were using Yah's name all the time. But sometimes they would use these substitutes like this K and an S with the line over it. And he's saying that, well, he believes that the holy name was in the first messianic writings over time, it got replaced with the surrogate, this abbreviation, just to be careful about it. And over time, it created confusion between the L-O-R-D, G-O-R-D, and the L-O-R-D, J-C. This touches a nerve for us sacred namers. It's very frustrating. We've tried to render the holy names in the New Testament, and we are confronted with Greek constructs that confuse who Kurios is when it's talking about Yahshua, and who Kurios is when it's talking about Yahweh. And I want that, I, I mean, for decades I wanted that matter settled. That was really eating me away, because, you know, we'd publish translations of the Bible, and we put the holy name in where we think it goes, but we had no systematic way of knowing every case. When you see Kurios in the Greek, should that be a name or, or a title? Should that be the name of Yahweh or is it a title? And if it's a title, is it referring to Yahshua or is it referring to the Almighty? If I can get documents that have Yahweh's name clearly indicated where it belongs, it becomes a lot easier to sort out that stuff. Now, there is a type of Messiah taught in the world. Uh, my my, my brother-in-law, he, he calls it the J.C. of the world. He doesn't 
he says the whole name, but it's like there's a, a weak kind of watered-down Messiah believed in, in in the world. And he allows sin, anything goes. <laughs> and the Greek text obscures his distinction between him and the Almighty Father. Dr. George Howard's work provided a significant boost to sacred namers in the 1980s by arguing convincingly for the presence of the tetragram in the New Testament. Yet another scholar who asserts that the name appears in the New Testament is David Trobich. He makes this claim even with a Greek text original in view. Well, that kind of makes sense. I wish everybody had time to read this book. It's a real small book, the first edition of the New Testament. He's referring to a Greek text. He said it was actually a runaway bestseller put together by a publisher who gathered all the best texts he could. And David Trobish talks a lot about synchronizations between various parts of the New Testament, how they synchronize together without collusion between the authors. And um, he thought it was done on purpose by the editors. Of course, we believe it was done by the Spirit of Yah. There's all kinds of cool things in the New Testament that connect up very nicely in the Greek. Well, as David Trobish is talking about how this New Testament was constructed, he points to a passage that had Yahweh's name in it. And it was not a quote from the Old Testament. But you see, this matches what we see in literary evidence around that time. People were writing Greek things and putting Yahweh's name in it. It wasn't such a big deal, just like we do. We write English things and we put Yahweh's name in it. We have a a popular Bible from South Africa, line after line of English, and there Yahweh's name is in Hebrew. There's nothing really that strange about it. It's a common practice. It goes all the way back, at least as far as the Septuagint, Well, we know from history and from fragments we've discovered, you've got rows and rows of of Greek words, and then Yahweh's name appears in the original. Bang, they put it in there in ancient Hebrew letters. These scholars have strength for their findings because Greek-Jewish documents contain the name up to the Messianic era. As I said, there are at least three Hebrew Matthew manuscripts out there. I'm acquainted with two of them. And I'll talk about the third one a little bit. But when I say manuscripts, I don't mean there's just three fragile bundles of paper, like in three fragile bundles. They're more like manuscript traditions. Um, There's uh, collections of these in various places around the earth. First we'll talk about the Jean Dutelet Hebrew manuscript. Now, the original manuscript was used by Jews to study Christianity. This was in Italy, and it used used by them to prepare for debates with Christians. They'd read in Hebrew what Christians believed, that they'd enter the world in debate. They just wanted to be knowledgeable about what we believed. The manuscript was obtained by Bishop Jean Dutelet from Italian Jews on a visit to Rome in 1553. Now, the thing he got from the Jews, today it sits in the Bibliothèque Nationale Paris, Hebrew Manuscript 132. Jean Dutelet grabbed that, and he transcribed it into the standard Hebrew we see in that image on the right. Now, that's Jean Dutelet's writing. We'll take a closer look at that in a little while. 
<clears throat> Jean de Tolet's manuscript is in the uh, Bodleian Library of Oxford. And uh, I have a copy of it here. When I was into this stuff, I contacted the Bodleian Library of Oxford. I said I want a, a large photostat of that thing. I'll show you an image of it in a moment. If anybody wants to see this stuff, I brought a lot of props today. If anybody wants to see this stuff later, that's fine with me. Hugh J. Schoenfield uh, translated that in 1927. It's called an old Hebrew text of St. Matthew's Gospel. I learned about it in the Jehovah's Witnesses interlinear translation of the New Testament. And that's rare. I got one, uh, but it's rare. But they talk about these Hebrew Matthews. They talked about Hugh Schoenfield's translation. They said there was a copy in the New York Library. But I was stuck on a business trip in Austin, Texas. And I thought, let me take a chance. I went to the University library there while I was in town, and bang, Hugh Schoenfield's work was there. So <clears throat> I ordered a microfilm of it. This is a microfilm of Hugh Schoenfield's. Is it the other one? Yeah, it's the other one. This is a microfilm of Hugh Schoenfield's translation. And I could go to any library with this and start cranking and seeing what Hugh Schoenfield wrote. Well, Hugh Schoenfield at that time used to be a practicing Messianic Jew. Um, but toward the end of his life, he got into some really dark stuff. If you look at a picture of him, he looks like he's from some, I mean, really, it's like his face changed and he looked like he was in, he, he, was, like he was in some kind of a scary movie. Um, he wrote that uh, blasphemous thing called the Passover plot. And <clears throat> he essentially walked away from his Jewish Christian faith. But his translation of the Hebrew Matthew was pretty good. And he brought out some good things. We're going to talk now about the Shem Tob Hebrew Matthew. This is a different tradition where the previous one came from a manuscript found in Italy. This one came from Spain. The Spanish Jewish rabbi Shem Tov ben Isaac ben Shaprut, somewhere between 1380 and 1385, published an anti-Christian religious treatise called the Touchstone. The book of Matthew in Hebrew appears in this work, broken into bite-sized pieces for rebuttal and commentary. So he'd quote Matthew, and then he'd have an argument against it. Then he'd quote the next section of Matthew and have an argument against it. Around 1985 to 1987, George Howard, who I celebrated a few minutes ago, he published a translation of the Hebrew sections. He just extracted the Hebrew, compressed them into a book, and I bought... A case of these. I was passing them around in 1987. I said, this is going to be big. This is going to be really big. When he announced the publication in the religious journals, I knew at once it would be important because of what he found. Now, he located about nine copies of this, this text, around the world. And the number of known copies has now climbed to about 28 manuscripts. But unlike the Dutelet text, it reads much differently than the Greek. In other words, the Dutelet text looks a lot like the Greek written in Hebrew, or vice versa, right? But the Shem Tob text has different constructs, different readings. 
it has a stronger flavor of authenticity. Now that's debated, okay, but that's what I get from it. The third text, I uh, just got to mention for completeness, Sebastian Moinster. Now here's the deal on him. Um, there's not as much, I can say, there's not as much known about the text, but his story is so well known. I had no qualms about lifting the information from Wiki. I've, I've read it over and over and over in the decades. But this is essentially what I've read over the years. Sebastian Moinster lived uh, between 1488 and 1552. He was a German cartographer, cosmographer, and a Christian Hebraist scholar. His, cosmo- his cosmographia from 1544 is the earliest German description of the world. Moinster published a printed version of the Gospel of Matthew written in Hebrew in 1537 and dedicated it to King Henry VIII of England. Moinster said the manuscript was defective when he got it from the Jews. And it's also said that Moinster's text closely resembles the Dutale Matthew. That's what they say. Nobody has published yet an in-depth analysis. But here's the problem. Since the places where Moinster repaired the text are indeterminate, he never marked it. He said he fixed it up, but he doesn't tell you where he fixed it. So you're looking at it and you think, well, did he make this or is this in the original? You don't know. So using the Moinster text for critical analytical research is difficult. And that's why you don't hear a whole lot of people talk about it. But there is something important coming up, and there'll be more on this fellow in his publication in a few minutes. And it's funny, for a text that is largely ignored and nobody really wants to deal with it, there's actually something very important attached to it. So there are two, there are main players on this stage as of the last, I would say up to the last few decades. My wording there is not quite accurate. Up to the last few decades, you have that pathway of Italian Jews giving a document to Jean Dutelet. He publishes it, and then Hugh Schoenfeld translated it in 1927. And there's some striking readings in the Hebrew that you think, you know, that kind of makes sense. It throws light on things that may be unclear in the Greek. And then the other pathway is the Shem Tov text that Dr. George Howard accessed, nine manuscripts around the world, and he published this thing here I've got. By the way, this is probably a, I know this is a collector's item now. It's really hard to get. And here I was passing them around in 1987. But this is a treasure. It's marked up. You can see it's got dog ears. It's a a real treasure to have. Now, there are newer players on the stage. Dr. George Howard is gone. But for the Dutelet text on the left side of your screen, there's a translation of the Dutelet done by James Trim of Texas. See if I can find that. The Basorat Mati, the good news of Matthew. Now, James Trim argues, he thinks this is the original. Now, one of his arguments is that the Aramaic text, the Greek text, and the Dutale text, they all read pretty much the same. He thinks, therefore, that the Hebrew and Dutale is the original. And he argues forcefully about that. Um, the Shem Tob text 
that was published by uh, George Howard. He seemed to think originally that the, the original was at the foundation. He backed off after he got a lot of criticism for that. But people like me who read this, we think, oh my goodness, there's some real authentic stuff there. Another fellow has picked up the Shem Tob tradition, Dr. Dan Merrick. Now, it may be hard to read the title of his publication. I can't wait to get it. It's called Shem Tov's Hebrew Matthew Sacred Name Version. Ooh, maybe he's, he's one of us. Anyway, that's pretty recent, 2015. But it appears to be English only. Now, I'll be asking for a close-up soon, but for now, you can probably tell on this that on your left is English and on the right is Hebrew. And George Howard did the same thing with the Shem Tob. But Dr. Dan Merrick only published the English here, which makes it of less interest to me. Each camp argues well and strong for the primacy of their preferred manuscript. But this is an old problem. No matter where you are in the world of religion, you're always going to have people wondering who has the true ancient tradition. That's always a big fighting area. Even in the Muslim world, Sunni versus Shiite, I get them mixed up, but one of them claims they have the real tradition because their leaders are descendants of Muhammad. And the other side says, no, we have the real tradition because uh, our ancestors were appointed by Muhammad. So everybody wants the real tradition. We find this fight going on uh, in the Seventh-day Adventist church. Who has the original tradition? Every religion has this going on. Who's got the real thing? Who's got the real goods? Is it Dutale? Is it Shem Tob? This stuff has some interest for me. As you'll see in a while, there's one thing above all that I'm interested in. Now, the Dutale text has a number of helpful readings. I'll give you one of them. Deuterite Hebrew manuscript of Matthew contains the missing name Abner, which occurs between Abiud and Eliakim in the Deuterite text of Matthew 1, verse 13. Those observant Bible students will tell you the text says there should be three groups of 14 names, but the third group has only 13 names. And the scholars are trying all kinds of mental gymnastics to make it work, and they can't. Well, it turns out there's an extra name in the Deuterite text. In Hebrew and Aramaic, the D, the Dalet, and the Rash look very much alike and are often misread for each other. In this case, a scribe must have looked back up to his source manuscript and picked back up with the wrong name, thus omitting Abner from the list. Now, I've just read to you a section from a thing you can find on the Internet called In Search of the Original Words of the New Testament by Ronald L. Hall. Now, there is Matthew 1.13 with the additional names slipped in. And Abiud begot Abner, and Abner begot Eliakim, and Eliakim begot Azor. Now, it turns out, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm so sorry. Turns out there's further evidence of this in the Aramaic text, in one Aramaic text. And this lends weight to the relationship between Dutile, Matthew, the Aramaic, and the Greek. But uh, 
One thing that really means more to me than anything is the fact that the Deuteronomy text indicates where the holy name belongs. Now, the image I pasted there, I hope you can see, that's a scan of my own document here. And uh, I can always clean up later, I suppose, but I'll just yank out a sheet and let you see what it looks like. That's what Jean Dutoulet wrote hundreds of years ago, and I got a scanned copy of it. I used a, a system to pinpoint where the holy name is located. You see those black arrows. In the upper right-hand corner, there's an arrow pointing down, and then there's an arrow pointing to the left on the right-hand side of the screen. If you follow those two arrows, they crisscross at the location where the holy name appears in the text. Now, um, what you saw a moment ago was my scan. Now, this image is from the Internet. I took it. And uh, that looks like uh, Yahweh Elohim. Elohim. Yahweh Elohim there. I don't know the verse for that, but um, the previous one was in chapter 4, verse 10. Now, I'm going to invite you to be found is on the right side. And the very same passage is indicated there on the left. Now, um, where are my props? <laughs> okay. That business on the right-hand side, that is medieval Hebrew. And medieval Hebrew is really hard to read. Now, I asked Jonathan if he could do a, a Zoom for me. And any of you here can look at this later. Jonathan, I'm going to ask you to try to zoom in on this. Those of you who are close up, does that look like Hebrew to you? Looks like a bunch of squiggly stuff. Squiggly and looks like a bunch of SpaghettiOs to me. The, the medieval, one more time just in case, because I don't know how, what kind of progress Jonathan is making down there. But I do want people to see for the record how hard that is to read. The holy name there is indicated with those three yods, but in the original text taken from Italy, it looks like there's a capital letter L wrapped around it. And that appears throughout the text where Yahweh's name belongs. I was in correspondence with Dr. George Howard. I was privileged. Well, some of these professors are real nice, and maybe they like it when ordinary people like us take an interest in their work. But we corresponded a little bit, and we had a lovely conversation by phone. And uh, next slide. There we go. I said to him, you know, some of that medieval Hebrew is impossible to read. And so he sent me this Hebrew alphabet, a chart of the Hebrew alphabet through the ages. This chart appears downstairs in one of the display cases. <clears throat> But I got mine from Dr. George Howard. <laughs> Hallelujah. I still couldn't read it. I don't have time for this stuff. I just don't have time for this stuff. I have to rely on scholars to transcribe it and publish it. The thing I unscrolled for you, that is the Shem Tob text that Dr. George Howard preferred out of the nine. This one was purchased from the British Library. He even coached me on what to ask for. The wording has to be just right. In a large photostat of the Hebrew section. Mm. 
I said the Dutile text has a number of helpful readings. And the original text from which Dutile work can be found here online. I paid a lot of dough for this scroll. Now you can get it online for free. For those of you on the audio outreach, I'm going to labor through this long link. You can do a free download from the, from, um, the uh, Dutile, the original Dutile text. <clears throat> HTTPS colon slash slash Gallica, that's G-A-L-L-I-A-C-A dot B-N-F dot F-R slash ARC colon, slash, 12148, slash, B, T, V, 1, B, 107202220 S, slash, F9, dot Okay, if you want to hear that again, just play back the archive, okay? A scan, a scan of Dutile's transcription is available from HTTPS colon, double slash, TorahResource.com. Hugh Schoenfield's translation and James Trim's translations are easy to find online after you do a little digging. But my emphasis there up till now has been on due to lay. By the way, uh, Hugh Schoenfield's translation, it's funny, these Hebrew Ritz uh, people, they've, they've created a groundswell of interest, and now a fresh publication is available. The Shem Tob text has many more useful readings, but also some puzzling ones. I'm going to give you one of my favorites. <clears throat> now, when George Howard, hold on. When George Howard published this, we have a note here from the control room. Hmm. Oh, I'm going to ask to show the scroll again, please. Anyway, um, when Howard published the, the Shem Tob, which is what I'm pulling back out again, that medieval Hebrew is so hard to read. Um, in his writings, he just got a copy because he thought it would be a good idea to get one. He had read elsewhere that the Shem Tob was exactly like the Deuteronomy text. I'm going to hold it open again for those who if he can zoom in. That stuff is just so hard to read. I think that's when I gave up of the research. I thought, I can't figure this stuff out. I'm going to rely on others to publish it for me. George Howard comes through very emphatically in his publications, plural, at that time. When he found the Shem Tob text, he was stunned. I mean stunned to find it jam-packed with puns, word plays, alliterations, clever turns of expression. He didn't expect that. I'm going to take you back to something that, um, I hate to talk about negative things, but you have to sometimes talk about them like, a, like for an example. How many of you ever heard of the Jesus Seminar? It's a scholarly seminar, the Jesus Seminar. Anybody ever heard of it? Okay. Scholars who are hostile to the Bible, they get together periodically, and they have meetings about what parts of the New Testament can they say for sure are there, really there in the beginning? I mean, these are people that have no faith at all. And they're just trying to find out, well, what parts can we accept? And here's one rule they follow. They say that if something in the text makes Yahshua look bad, or it's troubling, then it probably happened as recorded. 
Remember, they're hostile to him. And if it's something that embarrasses him or makes him look bad in their eyes, they say, okay, that was probably there. For example, when he cursed the fig tree, you know, that, they said that probably happened. You know, when anything's difficult, they say it probably happened. Now, turn the page. These manuscripts are always in the possession of Jews. They are controlling these things. And when the manuscripts wear out, a scribe rewrites them on fresh parchment. In this case, if there's something in there that makes Yahshua look good, then it must be in the original. Because these Jewish scribes managing these things, they have no motivation to make Yahshua look good. They don't want to dignify him. But yet here he is popping off with expressions that are a snappy, powerful, thought-provoking. Here we have Matthew 5, verse 9 to 10. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of the Almighty. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Well, the word for peacemakers in the Greek uh, has something, you know, in Hebrew. It's a word that means to chase after, to run after. Blessed are they who pursue peace. But the word for persecuted is also the very same Hebrew word. Exactly the same Hebrew word. And it means chase, sometimes with hostile intent. Here we'll copy the definition from Strong's. Radaf, a primitive root to run after, usually with hostile intent. Figuratively, gone by, chase, put to flight, follow, follow after, follow on, hunt. It also means persecute. This is in your Hebrew dictionary associated with your ordinary Bibles. Strong's number 7291. Matthew 5, 9 through 10 is better translated in light of the Hebrew Matthew. Blessed are they who chase after peace, for they shall be called the children of Elohim. Blessed are they who are chased after in persecution. For the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You know that the Jewish scribes who managed these documents didn't put something like that in there to make Yahshua look clever. But it's there. In the Hebrew Matthew, especially the Shem Tob, is really jam-packed with that stuff. It's, it's amazing. It's delicious. It's like I'm standing there in the open field listening to my master teach when I read that stuff. Here's an example of that word in Hosea 8.3. Israel hath cast off the thing that is good, the enemy shall pursue him. So blessed are they who pursue, vigorously pursue, shalom. And then there's the word shalom. Itself has a bouquet of meanings. Wholeness, peace, health, everything go nice. Oh yeah. Functionality. They must have loved listening to him. Here's another one from Shem Tov. This one means a lot to us. Now, the standard Greek text has a trinity formula in Matthew 28, 18. Um, Why should I even have to read this? You know, Elder Allen has spoken on this at least twice. This Father, Son, and Holy Spirit business there looks like an ecclesiastical edition. There are scholars who don't know what we know who said... There's a problem there. There are Trinitarians in ancient Christianity, Trinitarians who quoted this passage and never mentioned Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But in the Shem Tob Hebrew Matthew, it says 
simply. And Yahshua drew near to them and said, To me has been given all power in heaven and earth. Go and teach them to carry out all things which I have commanded you forever. No Trinity formula. Do you see where I get the feel that Shem Tob is the greater sense of authenticity? Okay, I'm going to just take a time out. I prepared some additional notes. Yeah. Talked about word plays. Now, this, I'm going to talk about two things that are common between Shem Tob and um, the Deuteronomy text. Remember when Yahshua, I think it's in Matthew 11, around verse 7, he, he speaks of John the Baptist and he says, what did you go out to see, a reed shaken by the wind? Really seems like an odd reading, doesn't it? Well, he, he did say that. <clears throat> he did say on the screen. I'm pointing you, though, to Matthew eleven seven. Well, it turns out the word for reed is Strong's number Conan, number 7070. Conan. And it simply means read. But the word for zealot, zealot, somebody's all fired up about something. It's kanai. So the word for read is kane, and the word for zealot is kanai. That's Strong's number 7068. Well, that's where it comes from. So when they heard him say that, they simultaneously, it was a word play. He said, did you go out to see a zealot? Shaken by a spirit? Slash, did you go out to see a reed shaken by a wind? It was a play on words. This guy must have been great to listen to. Oh my goodness. And and on top of it all, he's speaking with a hick Galilean accent. How does that grab you, huh? I don't know if any of you like uh, Texas accent or uh, Louisiana accent. But those, oh, oh, the Eastern Tennessee accent. Oh. Oh, these beautiful faraway accents. Now imagine somebody speaking, though, a hick accent, and he's talking brilliantly like this. That's why they said, where did he get this knowledge from? Um, the Shem Tob and the Deuteronomy text both have that feature with the uh, reed shaken by the wind, where the, the Hebrew sounds like, at the same time, a zealot shaken by a spirit, because the word for wind and spirit are identical. Another feature they share... I didn't uh, prepare any notes for this, but I think it's sufficient to say. On the passage in Matthew 5, where it talks about the permanency of marriage, the Greek text makes it sound kind of weak. Like, let man, what Elohim hath made, let man not put asunder. It sounds kind of weak. But the wording, we can look at it together if you want, but the wording in the Hebrew, both Shem Tov and the wording is emphatic. What Elohim has brought together, man is unable to separate. It's uh, really striking in its tone. Okay, we're going to take a break now to lay a foundation for appreciating the true value of these Hebrew texts. We're going to talk about Yahweh versus other. Yahweh versus other. When you um, Look around, study, research, just keep stumbling across these critics of the Bible who try to say that Yahwism, that's what I'm calling our religion right now, Yahwism. We are sometimes called Yahwists by outsiders. They'll say Yahwism was actually slapped together by a bunch of other religious traditions. I probably misspelled Zoroastrianism, but they have teachings that resemble the Bible. Buddhism has teachings that resemble Yahshua. 
There are Sumerian myths, Mesopotamian myths, Hinduism. Now, back in the uh, 70s and 80s, there was a real popular image of Krishna. Maybe some of you from my generation remember seeing images of Krishna playing a flute, and Krishna's foot is on the neck of a snake. Maybe some of you remember that. Well, that's a, a, that is a remnant, like a little fossilized custom of uh, the prophecy that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent, the serpent would bruise his heel. There's Egyptian myths. For a little while, one of the pharaohs of Egypt, Akhenaten, he became monotheistic. He said there's only one deity, it's the sun, and his name is Aten. Because Egyptian is a Semitic language, Aten does bear a resemblance to the word Adon, doesn't it? Well, he tried to destroy all traces of their, their polytheistic paganism and become monotheistic. So there's critics who say that monotheism came from Egypt. There's Babylonian myths, the Gilgamesh epic. Parts of it read like the story of Noah. Now, one good reason to reject these theories, obviously these critics haven't sat down in a room together and compared notes, because if you were to bundle all these claims in, in one big ball, it would mean that our priests, our patriarchs, and our prophets were very occupied running around trying to gobble up all these pagan traditions. And our history doesn't read like that. Our history is pretty, it's pretty linear, revelation and application. And it is preposterous to believe all of these are going on at the same time, but there's critics who will argue fervently about it. The truth is in the next day, this diagram here. Yahweh's true ancient religion, the most ancient religion on the earth, will find remnants and traces elsewhere. And they pick this stuff up and run with it. Now, Yahwism is distinguished by at least two features. Yeah, it's a sort of a Bible apologetics thing, but there's also evangelical content here too. Number one, Yahwism is distinguished because we have a vast prophetic schema pointing to Yahshua's first coming. I don't know how much you know about other religions, but you take all the religious teachers of the world, all of them, line them up against the wall, line them, get them all up there, Buddha, the Buddha, Nanak, the Bab, Muhammad, we will humbly ask Yahshua to join the lineup, even though he doesn't belong with him. And you ask him, which of you guys has hundreds of years, thousands of years, of prophetic anticipation of your coming? None of them do. Which of you have prophetic anticipation of where you're going to be born, how you're going to die, where you're going to live, what your teachings are? None of them have that. Yahshua of Nazareth has that. Not only that, Yahshua of Nazareth even has prophecies talking about the guy who comes before him. We have prophecies about John the Baptist. Hundreds of years before he shows up. Yahwism is distinguished by that. It's also distinguished by one other thing. Israel was entrusted with a kingdom and covenant identified by the name of the one true universal deity. I don't get to talk about Yahweh's name enough. <laughs> Can someone advance the slide for me? There we go. 
Let's look at that name. It's a yod plus the verb hawa. Yod is the, is the pronoun he. Hawa is the verb to be. There's a standard ordinary verb to be in Hebrew, haya. Equivalent to H-Y-H. But his name is constructed with the most ancient and novel verb to be. You get the Strong's number on Hawa, you'll find it's only used six times in the Bible. Like when Isaac blesses um, Jacob, he says, be ruler, over the, uh, be ruler over your brethren. The word be there, the word be is Hawa. It's only used six times in the whole Bible, a very rare poetic form of the verb for existence. Those of you who are homeschoolers, or maybe you're not homeschooled, you should have memorized the verbs to be. Verbs that indicate existence. Am, is, are, was, were, be, been, could, would, should, have, has, had, seem, appear, (coughs) (coughs) taste, smell. These are all verbs that indicate existence. (coughs) He exists. That is a very precise meaning for his name. Friends, think about it. What's, what is one of the most prominent blasphemies against Yahweh? Is that he doesn't exist. The claim he doesn't exist. No, he, he doesn't exist. No, no. I don't think he exists. Prove to me he exists. I would, only, I, I would say the only blasphemy worse than that is someone pretending to be Yahweh. And um, maybe that's in the offing. Yahweh's name is true, it's authentic, it's universal, it's easily understood, it's unique, and it is self-evident. This is actually a handy evangelical tool, especially in this age where people's faith is really failing them. They're not sure the Almighty exists. The universal authenticity of Yahweh's name, he exists. When we call him that name, he exists. There's a psalm, I think it's 14. and Jose, you're good at this stuff. Psalm 14 and Psalm 53. Aren't those the ones that are at the same? Everybody got that? Okay. Well, one says, the fool says in his heart there is no Elohim. The other one says, the fool says in his heart there is no Yahweh. Well, that would seem odd to put a name in there. That's like saying there is no Michael. There is no Jose. But in this case, it's a wordplay in Hebrew. There is no Yahweh. Because his name literally means he exists. The key to cherishing the Hebrew, Matthew, and all texts like it is this. These texts do not have their value abiding in novel readings and controversial passages. That kind of business has been going on for centuries. Yahweh's name in the text is the genetic marker lending weight and authenticity to the writing. That's where my interest has always been, from the very beginning. It's very tempting to go chasing this reading and that reading. Oh, maybe there's some secret here that's been hidden from me. I just want to know where my father's name is. That's all I care about. Everything else is interesting. Even if a reading is questionable due to scribal error or whatever, The holy name therein is a tip-off that Yah's people are in on it. That's what I want. I tabulated the 22 places where Yahweh's name appears in the Shem Tob and the Deuteleh. In the Shem Tob text, it's indicated by the Hebrew letter He, for Hashem, the name. 
In the Deuteronomy text, I showed you it was three yods. I just represented it by three I's, three letters I. Okay. Now, they don't agree in every place. These are texts owned by Jews in two parts of the world. Most places they agree. But here's the juicy part. You see the sections I've highlighted in yellow. This is big. You know, we should sound the horn. The parts that are in yellow, those are fresh, brand new, New Testament material. Think about it. When the New Testament quotes the Old Testament, it's understandable if a Jewish scribe said, oh, this Christian document quotes the old the Tanakh. Uh, let me put the holy name back in where it belongs. And he'd do that. I can see that. But when he comes to, to new material that doesn't appear in the Old Testament, the scribe would never put Yahweh's name in there. He would never dignify it with that. This was eye-popping. I saw this in the Deuteronomy text early in my own research. Okay. You know, I had all this, all this investment in the Deuteronomy text just because I wanted to find out where the name was. And then when George Howard's Hebrew, Matthew came out, here's the second edition. You bet I went looking for that. Yahweh's name is appearing in fresh New Testament material that never existed before in the Old Testament. Case closed. Our Messianic brethren used Yahweh's name. There's no getting around it. Because a people hostile to using that name preserved it. There's 22 places where that appears, but they don't fit all on one sheet. I may have to ask you to advance the slide again. There's the rest of them. And uh, this was... um, That chart was put together by me. Now here's a chart, next slide, of there's 22 people who translated the Shem Tob. Here's 11 of them. There's 11 more on the next sheet. This chart was found on the uh, Wikipedia, and it was done by a guy named John Belushi. Shows all the people who've been trying to translate the Shem Tob, Hebrew Matthew. There seems to be a lot more interest in that today. We're almost done. Remember, this is just giving you a taste. But it's, for me, it's electrifying to see Yahweh's name in New Testament writings. There's more. There's more. Yeah, we're coming to an end, but there's more. Here's a, a reading from Matthew 23, 23 and Luke eleven forty-two. I'm going to show you the superiority of the Hebrew roots approach to the scriptures. In Matthew 23 and Luke 11, Yahshua talks about the weightier matters of the law. But the wording isn't the same. Matthew says, judgment mercy and faith. Luke says judgment and love of Elohim. They don't match. But if you bring into account the Shem Tob, the Shem Tob mentions four things. The judgments of Torah, kindness, truth, and faithfulness. Now, I'm going to say the line on judgment is in large agreement among those three sources. But the Shem Tob Matthew explains how Matthew and Luke are interpretations. I remember Randy Demet gave a sermon on this years ago. You could do translations that do word for word, or you can do translations that do idea for idea. 
Matthew's translator to Greek and Luke's translator to Greek took the ideas from the original Hebrew and they rendered interpretation. I'm going to draw your attention to it. The first line, judgment appears across all three. So I'm not going to harp on that. Uh, There we go. They pretty much agree. So I'm going to let that stand. But when it came to chasid in the Shem Tob, the word for kindness, chasid, well, when kindness is talking about human beings, it's talking about love between humans, unconditional love. But when it's talking about religion, chasid means love of Elohim, as in the Hasidic Jews. So Matthew and Luke took it in different directions. They're translators into Greek. But the original word in the Shem Tob is chasid. And we know chasid has a bouquet of meanings. Let's go to the next one, truth. Okay, we don't quite see the word amuth, truth, rendered in either Matthew or Luke. It looks like they bundled that in with an interpretation for amunah. Because amuth and amunah, they're related to the word amen, means firmness. Matthew renders it as faith. Luke renders it as love of Elohim. So the Shem Tob serves as a kind of a decoder ring for how these Greek translations emerged in Matthew and Luke. I'm going to just wrap up by talking about further developments. Uh, a Hebrew version of the book of Hebrews has been found. This is electrifying. A Hebrew, well, we've known for years Hebrews would be in Hebrew, Right? What, are they going to write it in Latin to a bunch of Hebrews? Remember I told you Moinster would come up later? We really have no use for Moinsters as of yet that we found. But James Trim bought every one he could find around the world. And in one copy of Moinster, attached to it is a Hebrew version of Hebrews. No comments, no provenance, no explanation. So James Trim translated it. He was shocked to find this. And again, it includes Yah's name in the text. And this time it's included as the Hebrew letter He. There's two verses there, 1-1 and 10-30, that have fresh New Testament material. They're not quotes from the Old Testament. Yahweh's people used his name, even in the New Covenant era. Okay, there's more. We're almost done. We have found Hebrew fragments of John and Luke have emerged. Those include Yahweh's, it's just the first few sheets, just the first few pages, but those include Yahweh's name all spelled out. Now, there's a Hebrew version of Maccabees 1. Now, the first Maccabees is not scripture, but there's a reason this is important. James Scott Trim, again, he bought a, a copy of this. This document has been in the National Library of Paris since 1896. They represent Yahweh's name with a double yot. But here's where the value of this is. This finding does not make 1 Maccabees scriptural. Rather, it lends weight to the analysis methods that predicted a Hebrew origin would be determined. Because there's people who've looked at the Greek of 1 Maccabees and they say, hey, this reads like Hebrew. That must be a Hebrew original. Finding a Hebrew original lends weight to that. Especially with Yahweh's name in it. Finally, New kid on the block, some guy named Dr. El Garza. we got to watch this fellow. I feel about him the same way I felt about George Howard um, 30 years ago. 
Dr. El Garza on YouTube has dedicated his work to exploring all New Testament manuscripts in Hebrew. He claims to have found 3,000 New Testament manuscripts. It's hard to believe, but we got to watch this guy. Now, where did he find those? He hasn't said, but everything else we found up till now is in libraries, the Cairo Geniza, it's a massive collection of, of stuff, and uh, the Jewish seminaries. Jewish seminaries have a lot of New Testament material. In summary, for many years, sacred neighbors have claimed that much of the New Testament was in Hebrew. The Hebrew Matthew has been around for a long time. Independently, scholars of varying interests have brought them forth. Many are surprised at the cool, authentic things they find in there. More manuscripts have emerged. Hebrews, John, Luke. We lost an ally in Dr. Howard, but uh, fellows like Dr. Garza and others will be good to watch going forward. Above all, I am watching these developments for placement of the holy name. I thank you for your kind attention. Yahweh bless you all.